So the title of tonight's talk is um, Holding Life Tenderly, the Practice of Mindfulness and Loving-Kindness. And um, I'm going to begin by, it's just a coincidence, that I was sent this article from the New York Times about a meditation retreat, about the third day of a meditation retreat. And it appeared this morning in the New York Times. It's actually, I'm not, I'm serious. Um, maybe they're here. Maybe they're here, right? <laughs> Shouldn't be using the internet. <laughs> what did we tell you? <laughs> no, they're actually talking about a retreat at IMS in uh, Massachusetts. And so this writer from the New York Times writes, meditation retreats at this place at least are no picnic. <laughs> you don't follow your bliss. You learn not to follow your bliss. You let your bliss follow you. <laughs> and you learn this arduously. If at the end you feel like you're leaving Shangri-La, that's because the beginning felt like Guantanamo. We spent five and a half hours per day in sitting meditation, five and a half hours per day in walking meditation. By day three, I felt achy, far from nirvana, and really, really sick of the place. <laughs> I was sick of my morning yogi job. I was sick of the bland vegetarian food. And I wasn't particularly fond of all those Buddhists with those self-satisfied looks on their faces. <laughs> walking around serenely like they knew something that I didn't. <laughs> what I hated abo above all was that I wasn't succeeding as a meditator. You're not supposed to think of succeeding at meditating. And you're not supposed to blame yourself for failing. And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> that meditation reduced a writer for the New York Times to write blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Which is how it should be. You know, it's just thoughts. <laughs> and if it sounds familiar, just like Howie's talk last night, very quickly, we have the opportunity to see how the mind works universally. And it's often through the hindrances that Howie so eloquently explained last night. And this is our practice. And yes, it's about sitting, it's about walking, it's about the yoga movement practice. But it's also about seeing clearly, more clearly than we ever have before. And this is called Vipassana, which is translated as seeing clearly. Seeing clearly, clearly the blah, blah, blah <laughs> of our mind. And actually, you know, it's so interesting because someone in our, our group used that term. You know, she was talking and then all of a sudden the three words came out, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so it's actually a very interesting experience seeing clearly what is usually hidden in our lives, 
because we're so often dismissing them or ignoring them or simply taking things for granted. Our practice is like making the invisible visible, releasing the full range of our life experiences into our awareness. We take so much of our life for granted, and I sort of alluded to this before. We take our breath for granted. We hardly give it a thought during the day, and yet it's the energy that propels our life. We hardly uh, give a second thought to our ability to ambulate in the world, to move across space until we're physically impaired or have an illness. We take satiating our physical hunger with food completely for granted. This is a privilege in many places in this world. We take so much of life for granted until we're at risk of losing it. And then the preciousness becomes so prominent. We realize how that we realize what the Buddha meant when he said, living life 24 hours in mindfulness is more precious than living a hundred years without it. And as we come into retreat, we begin to recondition this pattern of unconsciousness by strengthening this capacity to be aware. But we tend to, in our, uh, in our you know, habitual patterns, not to value this preciousness of life from moment to moment. And what we actually do, as we've referred to in different ways over and over again, we actually change our direct experience with, our, the, with the moment that's arising. Either because we like it and we want more of it, or we don't like it and we want to get rid of it. And all of this manipulation of our experience is not the life that is being lived. It's the life we think we should be living. And all of a sudden, we're living a thought and not our life. The invitation is to go beyond what we think we know of our lives and to explore the life that is actually being lived. So we start by noticing the details of our experience. We start with a a relatively neutral object, the breath, the sensations of the body. And then we begin to move to what becomes prominent in our experience, whether it's feelings or thoughts or strong physical sensations like discomfort or pleasure. And the instructions are so simple. I, I said, uh, you know, we discussed this in our, in our small groups. The instructions, for those of you who have been to many retreats, they actually never change. And that's kind of frustrating. You hear them over and over again, and then what you get to notice is the frustration, right? This is... This is the practice of mindfulness, meeting the moment for what it is. Whether the moments are part of the 10,000 joys 
or the 10,000 sorrows that make up our life. Because that is what is said that our life is, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, of which no life exists in this life plane in just the sorrows or just the joys. That each of us have this full range of experience. And our mindfulness is the invitation to meet all of those experiences with the same kindness, the same loving attention. It's not about being obligated to be aware or mindful, or it's not a mandatory uh, a declaration. It's really the intention to meet all of these moments with gentleness. It's an invitation. And so why is this kind of awareness important to us? Why is this kind of attention to detail important to us? So I'll just start with an experiential um, reason. Uh, I'm a new grandfather, which is an interesting experience because I never was a father. (laughs) And so I, I feel that I've sort of leapfrogged over the difficulties (laughs) and have the pleasure of enjoying this new being that's come into the world. And and so my husband Stephen and I are, you know, uh, helping with the child care. And it is so clear to me now that the aspect of paying attention in this new relationship is the experience of love. Because even those, even though I may not have had a child, I know my ex- own experience as a child that, that if the attention is not there, I don't feel loved. And so, you know, if I were to give this Dharma talk with my back towards you, what would your experience be? It would be a totally different experience than me making direct contact and being in relationship. Our ability to pay attention is our ability to express love. This is what this retreat is about, opening to our experience, opening to our experience of the entire world with all of our heart. So the more mindful attention that you're able to offer the sensations that arise in your experience, the more you are offering yourself an experience of profound love. You may not know this on a cognitive level, that you, are, that you think that you're loving yourself because it doesn't fit into our concept of loving. But you are totally loving yourself because in that moment of mindfulness, of gently meeting each experience without judgment, you are totally accepting who you are. You are totally allowing who you are in the world 
to completely be without question. We look for love in so many places. What's that song from, I'm going to date myself, you know, John Travolta and Deborah Winger, urban cowboy, that looking for love in all the wrong places. And how many times have we lived out that scenario, looking for love outside of this moment that we can actually offer ourselves? The love we need is right here and right now. The love we need is not necessarily the love we want from others. Awareness allows us to distinguish the difference between what we need and what we want. Because what we want and crave as Howie was talking about yesterday, is the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. And we conf- often conflate the two. We confuse what we need and we want. And I love this little cartoon that you know, has this sort of picture of a box store, you know, like Walmart or something, except the name of the store is Wants. <laughs> you know, it's a huge Wants. And then the tiny little side gate into the back of the store is needs. (laughs) You know, we, we completely focus on what we want and we forget and we, and we are not aware of the difference of what it is that we actually need. This aspect of self love, not in an egotistical way, but it's, 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 it's the mindful attention, the kind attention to your experience is such a yoga practice. We can have such intense feelings about our own body image, right? And often they're not the most pleasant feelings whether we feel that we're too heavy or too thin or too tall or too short, too much hair, too little hair, it's never quite right. And sometimes with the yoga, the physicality of the yoga practice, we can reinforce these negative images that we give ourselves about our body. We compare ourselves to you know, the teacher's form or the teacher's pose, or we compare ourselves to whoever else is in the room, and, and all of a sudden we begin to associate our self-esteem to the thoughts that arise. This can be a shadow in the physicality of the yoga practice, that there's an, there's an unconscious idealization that we should be somewhere. But it's not a problem with the yoga practice. It's not a deficiency in yoga. It's actually a reflection of the larger culture, of how we idealize and conceptualize beauty and this shadow around body image. 
So just a few things that you probably are already aware of, but that are actually um, indicators of how deep this cultural conditioning is. That 75% of healthy weight women think they're overweight. Almost one-fourth of preteens aged 9 to 13 have a poor to fair body image. And 80% of 10-year-olds have tried dieting. Poor body image is a contributing factor to teenage suicide. In the mid-1990s, I don't even know what the numbers are going to be for, for this last decade, liposuctions for males increased by 30%, whereas for females it only increased 20 And this is so interesting that, you know, the origin, so in terms of the male image, you know, the, the old G.I. Joe, you know, the equivalent of what, what, what toys that guys, uh, boys used to get, their physical form in the original um, uh, in the original form, if you blew it up to human size, the biceps of those GI Joes was about 12 inches in diameter. <laughs> the current GI Joe doll, if you blew it up life size, the bicep is 26 inches in <laughs> diameter. This is impossible for any bodybuilder to achieve. This is the setup of body image that we have in our culture. At Brown University, on the website, there is a whole um, page devoted to educating body image for you know, uh, people coming into adulthood. And, and so some of the selections are, why is body image so important? Why are so many people unhappy with their bodies? This is why mindfulness is so important. Directing our full, accepting, loving attention to the experience of our body without judgment, regardless of how the body is for us. It is an act of loving-kindness. It is an act of self-love that begins to dispel the myth of the self-critical mind, as well as the trance of the comparing mind, that we compare ourselves to others. And it begins to dispel this story that we tell ourselves that we are less than or not worthy. So loving-kindness in the Buddhist tradition is um, the Pali word metta, and you may have heard it um, many times, or this may be the first time that you've heard it. It is integrally woven into the fabric of mindfulness. Mindfulness is the kindness, you know, what we talked about the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. When kindness meets the sorrows in our life, when it just meets it without judgment, what is said to automatically unfold is compassion. The image that is, is used is that it's the quivering of the heart. It's that tender. It 
Generally, though, when we meet our moments of distress, we want to fix them. We want to get rid of them. We want to somehow use our practice to make them go away. But when you think about it, when a friend comes to you in distress or um, in suffering, what is it that you first do when they come to you? It's, it's likely that you don't fix them. It's, you know, what is, what is being requested is just your attention to validate what their experience is, to witness where they're at, to truly see what they're going through. And then, once they know that you get it, to move into you know, the relief of the pain or the distress. This is the aspect of compassion, simply meeting the sorrows of our life. Mindfulness is the kindness in the form of generosity, giving your full attention, remembering that attention is the experience of love, giving this full-hearted experience of love to yourself or others, whoever is the object of your attention. Mindfulness is kindness in the form of forgiveness, because mindfulness can only exist in the present moment. Letting go of all the sorrows or injuries of the past, not not worrying about the future, perseverating about the future. And mindfulness is the kindness of gratitude. It's the openness and the sense of wonder of, oh my God, this is what life is. This is what my whole life is. Cascading into this moment. This is the true nature of my experience. It's beyond words, but it's also this sense of, my gosh, thank you. But the kicker is that when we become, when we cultivate this awareness, when our awareness becomes strong and refined, it's not always a pleasant experience. We actually sometimes become more aware of more and more suffering. And this is living into the first noble truth, that there is suffering in our life. We become aware of how uncomfortable the body is. We become aware of that, those sensations of the itch, because we're not itching them, I hope. And seeing what's on the other side. And we know this from our yoga practice. You know, I, the trikonasana triangle is my favorite pose, and I hate it. <laughs> you know, bending that first time into, into my right leg and feeling the stretch in the tendons and the muscles, and there's always a crack in the pelvic area. And I know, because I've gone through it, 
that there's relief on the other side. There's a, there's a release and there's a benefit to having gone through that uncomfortable experience. This is really interesting. Because this is the experience of knowing that the path to less suffering is sometimes through more suffering. Sometimes we have to go through more discomfort in order to get to less discomfort. And how often do we miss this in our life? You know, when we're transitioning a job or an apartment or, you know, any of the stressors in our life. And we just want it to go away. But that's just not how life is unfolding. Sometimes we have to hold our awareness through that period before the relief will will enter. And those of you who have been in a primary relationship know this. When Stephen and I got together, you know, every argument was a make or break issue. It felt as if the relationship was going to end because the conflict was so intensely felt. And then over time, as we held our awareness and our intention to stay connected, it became clear that the relationship became stronger. This is going through pain in order to get on the other side of it. And so we've been able to be together for nine plus years, which in gay terms is like 45, but... (laughs) (laughs) But the awareness is so important because if we, if we see it, things begin to change. If we don't see it, we just repeat our unconscious patterns. And so Tongpulu Sayadaw, who um, is one of the Burmese teachers that, that uh, taught in California until he passed away, said, if you know it, it meaning suffering, it will break. If you don't know it, it will go round and round and round. So in the same New York Times um, issue, uh, there was a very interesting article um, on um, their training um, uh, people in active army duty uh, around awareness of their emotions. And uh, ostensibly, this is to be preventative of post-traumatic stress disorder as well as um, reduce the risk of suicidality when they return from deployment. And there was just this very in- one short story that was interesting. A veteran of several deployments to Iraq said he was out at dinner the night before when a customer at a nearby table said he and his friends were being obnoxious. He said, at one time, maybe I would have thrown the guy out the window and gone for his jugular. But guided by the new techniques, he fought the temptation and decided to buy the man a beer instead. The guy came over and he apologized. 
this training and reconditioning of our mental and physical habits is so integral to reducing suffering in our lives. The breath, the yoga, the practices that support our, our experience through our most difficult moments. Because it's when we repress or deny those experiences that the pattern of suffering gets recreated. This is one aspect of trauma. You know, the re-intrusive, uh, re-experiencing of, of wounds or injuries. The practice of mindfulness and metta offers opportunities to intervene and change this conditioning. So, a number of years ago, um, Anne and I um, had, a, had an opportunity to write a piece for a book that Stephen Cope um, edited uh, on yoga and meditation and how it affected our lives. And, and this story comes from that, that, that piece that I wrote because I still think that it's relevant in my life. Um, I was uh, at the corner of Ninth and Irving in San Francisco and I was about ready to go to dinner and I went to the ATM to get some money and I was really not mindful and there was a line and I was really impatient and I was late and I got to the front of the ATM and across the ATM was um, scrawled this anti-Asian hate graffiti. Chinese garbage, Chinese trash, worse. And all of a sudden, you know, my awareness was heightened. And everything fell away. The dinner fell away. And it, I just froze in that moment in time. I can still feel some of the emotions in terms of the rage that started to come up. Sort of tapping into all of those, you know, as a gay man of color, I've experienced different things and it just touched you know past experiences and i could feel my conditioning want to make this go away just to go to dinner forget it and this to me was a yoga moment it was an asana in life can i hold this pose can I feel these sensations cascading into my consciousness? This rage that actually, uh, I don't know if you experience rage like this, but my vision blurred because it was so intense. And, you know, the, 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 the heat and the vibration. And as I was standing on that street corner, it was, a, rel- it was um, a mixed neighborhood, so a lot of Asian couples were. And, and so watching um, these elderly Asian couples support themselves and just thinking about the, the impact of this on them and, and really feeling them as my parents and, and seeing other folks walk on the sidewalk and and relating them as my peers or my brothers and sisters and feeling that pain. 
And as my heart continued to break open, each time, each time there was this pain that, that came into my consciousness, I began to really feel how wounded this person must have been to create this scenario. And that's where I connected. That's where I connected with and not disassociated. And that's when I understood and felt. And it didn't prevent me from doing what I needed to do. You know, I contacted the Asian Legal Caucus. I, you know, I went and to the, um, I certainly contacted the bank and I did all those things that I needed to do. But it didn't stick. It didn't become traumatic because I feel that I went through the experience as opposed to around it. This was my experience of purification in ways that I had never had the skills to experience before in my life. And it was my practice, it was the mindfulness and the kindness to the moment, regardless of what moment was arising. This path is a purification of the heart, except we don't have a choice of when that purification happens. What needs purification just shows up. Can we be present for it? Simply meeting the experience Again, the same instructions with kindness, with mindfulness. Mindfulness and metta are connected so deeply. And so, um, just to share another direct experience of this this relationship. Uh, A few years ago, I went to Thailand to ordain and really uh, explore what this ancient tradition uh, meant to my practice. And so in the six months that I was a a monk, uh, probably the most uh, amazing activity that I was a part of, that I had the privilege to be a part of, was walking for my food. It's called Pindapat, alms round. And um, it's a, as soon as you enter that uh, activity, you can feel how ancient it is because at the crack of dawn, you um, take off your shoes because you are connected with the earth and you take your bowl and you begin to walk in the streets of the village. And you walk for the food that you will eat during the day because monastic nuns and monks are not allowed to cook, they're not allowed to purchase food, and they're not allowed to store food overnight. So you are totally dependent on the kindness of the community that supports you. And the, um, it is understood 
that the community sustenance, spiritual sustenance is dependent on the uh, monastic container holding the teachings, of course. So in the, at that dawn, that period of dawn, I, the, you walk with the food and the generosity is overwhelming. You always get much more than you require during the day. And it's amazing that, you know, these families will get up at three o'clock in the morning, cook these elaborate meals, and then elaborately bag the meal up so that the sauces don't run into each other. And, you know, it's, it's just so meticulously done. You feel loved in the way that the food is, is offered. Anyway, so... Um, you also get things like fruit and, and bags of potato chips. And <laughs> so I was eating this orange one day, and um, there is also a dining room because uh, sometimes you can't go on alms rounds and the monastery supplies it. And this orange that I was tasting from my bowl was spectacular. And, um, and I just, it, it was so much better than the oranges that I got from the dining room. So I did this experiment. So the next day I walked out and I got my food and I got an orange and then I got an orange from the dining room. And sure enough, the orange that I got from my alms round was bursting with flavor. And the orange from the dining room was okay. And I went to my uh, preceptor, the abbot of the monastery, and I was reporting this in, in terms of my interview, just like, you know, you have your interviews, I have my interviews. And um, he said, hmm, all these Asian teachers go, hmm. <laughs> no matter, no matter <laughs> where they're coming from, hmm, you're tasting your mindfulness and their kindness. It is that visceral. Ultimately, the awakened heart wishes this kind attention on all of our experience. Those that we like, those that we don't like, those that are kind of neutral. This full range of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of our life. Metta does not ask us necessarily, though, to feel intimate or, you know, close to people who necessarily have caused us great harm. But Metta does ask, what is my intention towards their existence as living beings? Do I wish them to be annihilated just because I want my suffering to be annihilated? Will their annihilation annihilate my suffering? And do I really wish to harm them in return? Which is actually called revenge, right? And really to acknowledge how deep this conditioning of, of anger and hatred is in our culture. You know, the, um, 
the code, the legal code, I think it was Assyrian, Hammurabi, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is 4,000 years old. That has conditioned us to match energy with energy. That, that if there's harm that's created, harm of equal or greater value needs to be given. And yet the compassion of wisdom knows there's another path. The ultimate weakness of violence is that it's a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie nor establish the truth. Through violence you may murder the hater, but you do not murder the hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate, and so it goes. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Only light can do that. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And the invitation of the metta compassion practice is to hold the practice itself with tenderness. If I cannot be loving in this moment, can I be kind? If I cannot be kind, can I be non-judgmental? If I cannot be non-judgmental, can I not cause harm? And if I cannot not cause harm, can I cause the least harm possible? Doing the best we can in each of these circumstances. Trungpa Rinpoche, who uh, um, started Naropa and uh, the Shambhala lineage in, in the West, writes, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, there is nothing there but tenderness. You feel sore and soft, and if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely opened and exposed. It is the pure, raw heart even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. It is this tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. This is a power that is so possible and that has occurred 
over and over again. So I don't know how many of you have read uh, President Obama's first book, Dreams from My Father. But when I picked it up, in the first 30 pages, this story just jumped out at me. And he's talking about his father, who was also called Barack Obama. But, um, uh, and his father was not a perfect man. I mean, he left the family and never came back. and, And yet this is a piece of who he was as a man. After long hours of study, my father had joined my grandfather and several other friends at a local Waikiki bar. Everyone was in a festive mood, eating and drinking to the sounds of a slack-keyed guitar, when a white man abruptly announced to the bartender, loudly enough for everyone to hear, that he shouldn't have to drink good liquor, and I'm not going to say the word that he writes, but you know it, next to using the n-word. The room fell quiet and the people turned to my father expecting a fight. Instead, my father stood up, walked over to the man, smiled, and proceeded to lecture him about the folly of bigotry, the promise of the American dream, and the universal rights of man. (laughs) This fellow felt so bad when Barack Sr. finished that he reached into his pocket, gave Barack $100 on the spot, paid for all of our drinks and your dad's rent for the rest of the month. Barack's father could see and be aware of a different path through the fire. When When that fire arises, it is an opportunity for purification. And the purification is to create something different than our conditioned reactivity that is about more and more violence. And so I don't know for sure, but it's my sense that this incident influenced what happened recently when Henry Louis Gates encountered Sergeant James Crowley. And that was another fire that could have been so much more inflamed than it was. And there was the vision that there could be something different, that this could be a learning moment, not just for two men, but for a whole culture. This is when our practice is not just about changing our own experience or our own life, but it's about transforming our world. I don't know how many of you know Michelle Bachelet. She's um, the first Latin American woman to be elected to the presidency of of a country in South America. And um, at 23, um, uh, 
she, um, and this was in the country of Chile, at 23 in 1973, after the U.S. had that, you know, orchestrated that coup uh, around uh, Allende, uh, her father, who was an Air Force general, um, got thrown in prison and basically tortured to death. And she and her mother got imprisoned and she was tortured and she was told that her mother would be killed daily, on a daily basis. Eventually, they got exiled to Eastern Europe until the Pinochet regime ended in 1990, and she came back and um, worked in the health care of the survivors of the regime and eventually migrated to the Department of Education. And then because of her contacts of her father in the military, she became um, uh, leader of the Department of Defense. And from there, she uh, ran for the office of presidency, and she got elected in 2006. And the speech on her, when she won that presidency, she said, because I was a victim of hate, I've dedicated my life to turning hate into understanding, tolerance, and why not say it, love. This is the reconditioning that our practice seeks. I don't know if Bachelet is involved in the Dharma, but the Dharma is involved with her. We have awake beings on this planet. Do not think it is not possible. We can hold a vision of how we see the world and also live into it. Another incredible woman just visited um, Spirit Rock in May, Venerable Dhammananda, who is uh, basically the first ordained Thai nun, fully ordained Thai nun. It's revolutionary because the patriarchy in, in Thailand is so severe. And um, the full order of nuns died out over a thousand years ago. And she's going upstream. So after uh, I had been ordained um, for about five months, while I was still in robes, I actually wanted to go and visit her. I wanted to go visit some of the senior uh, female monastics and teachers because they are in such a low profile in the culture. And I wanted to um, learn from her because she is standing in that fire continually and how that could relate to my experience as a person of color in the world, as a, as a gay man. How do I stand in, in the fires that I stand in with the grace that she does? And she said something that, that cognitively made sense, but coming from her had, had a very deep impact on me. She said, the greater the challenge, the greater the fire, the greater the fire, the greater the purification. Again, this is holding the pose. This is why we practice in the world. The purification of our heart through mindfulness and our loving kindness.
each time we practice, we are transforming our own world and we are transforming the larger world at the same time. Can we be aware of that? It is not just about your salvation. It is not just about your personal enlightenment. There is a direct connection between what we do in retreat here and freedom in the world. Our practice is not some postponement into some unknown future of our freedom. It is creating moments of freedom right here for ourselves, for our world, and really the world's yet to be. Because we are the beneficiaries of this lineage of tradition, two and a half thousand years. And so many indigenous cultures and traditions remind us that we are the ancestors of generations yet to come. We are already the elders, regardless of our anatomical age. We are the ancestors of this lineage already. Can you feel the magnitude of that practice that you're involved with? This is the collective embodiment, the possibility of transformation from our practice. This is the great journey that we're on. Some of you may recognize Anna Julia Cooper because a postage stamp just commemorated her. She's an African-American educator who was born in 1858 but um, uh, lived to be 105 and uh, collected multiple doctorate degrees was one of the first to do that of, of her background. And she writes, the cause of freedom is not the cause of a race, of a sect, a party, or a class. It is the cause of humankind, the very birthright of humanity. This is the great journey of our birthright. And it is possible because that's how he said last night, the Buddha said he would not teach something we could not do. Freedom is possible. This is the power of your practice, not just to change your world, but to change our world. So thank you for your practice. So the invitation is really to allow the words to fall away. Just like the sound of the bell, just words and concepts. Allowing your awareness to sink into the sensations of this moment and the possibility of freedom.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.